This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. It is that time of the year again. Love and compassion are in the air. Everyone is reveling in the holidays and the festivities this week. The movie channels have been playing the sugar rush Christmas films for the last week and a half. Even though there is no clarity on whether or not a new strain of the coronavirus is about to sink the world into another round of random death, destitution and desperation the ordinary individuals everywhere have resolved to indulge themselves in merry making the christmas and the new year are here again and the annual stock taking has begun in right earnest it is as good an opportunity as any for me to formally acknowledge your support and good wishes You've all been kind and encouraging to history chatter right from the first episode in August 2020. Your interest keeps me going and your feedback enriches and virtually directs the journey of these podcast. Going ahead into the new year, there is nothing I need more than your support and blessing. These days there is an almost settled manner in which people celebrate these occasions they know well in advance what they are going to do or which particular set of rituals they are going to perform most of this standardization has evolved since the 19th century and especially since the early 20th century some day I'll present an episode on how the manner of celebrating the Christmas underwent the process of standardization over the last two centuries. Today, let me take you farther back in time. When did it begin? There is no um consensus about the exact time, though it is well known that the church decided to create a feast. for Christ's birth or in latin nativitas sometime in the first quarter of the 4th century roughly between um 300 CE and 336 CE no such feast is mentioned in the list of feasts for the 3rd century and the new feast is recorded for the first time in a document dated 336 CE the choice of date was probably less arbitrary than it seems and i'll shortly come to that it probably drew on the practice for emperors to celebrate their birthdays on arbitrarily chosen dates wasn't christ too an emperor after all the timing of the birth of christmas offers an answer of why it had become necessary to invent it 
Christianity had only recently been anointed the imperial religion, the official religion, that is, of the Roman Empire. It was time now to urgently define its doctrines. The most urgent need was to settle the question of Christ's divinity. Was he a man or was he a god? It was agreed in the Council of Nicaea in 325 CE that Christ was both a man and God. There was some ambiguity yet. When exactly in his life did Christ become God? Was it after his baptism or at any other point in his life? Therefore, another council met at Ephesus in 431 CE. It resolved that he had been God right from the birth. The first eyewitness account of the celebration appears around 400 CE from Bethlehem. The first crib outside Bethlehem is recorded in Rome between 432 and 440 CE in Rome in a church which was called Santa Maria Maggiore, one of the first, the first in fact, to be dedicated to Mother Mary. Christmas was really a combination of two elements, two traditions, one old and the other new. 25th of December earlier marked an older tradition of observing the winter solstice. The worship of the sun as God was commonplace in ancient world. The cult of the unconquered sun was a major part of Mithraism, which was one of the candidates for the status of the imperial religion in the third century. In 274 CE, on 25th of December, Emperor, Roman Emperor Aurelian declared the Sol Invictus or the cult of the unconquered sun, the principal patron of the empire. There was then already an existing tradition of observing the solstice as an important religious occasion. To this was now added the peculiarly Christian doctrine that God had become man. These two elements from then on formed a constant factor in the history of the feast. Everything else, Christmas trees to cribs to carols, was either born out of their interaction or derived from them in one way or another. Of course, um, there were midwinter rites and celebrations around the winter solstice long before uh, Mithraism. 
they probably go back to times preceding records. Three among uh, these probably have had uh, some bearing on the Christmas. One was Saturnalia, which was a fertility feast among primitive Romans celebrating Saturn. It predated the Julian calendar, but later settled to a series of dates in December. The second one was the Feast of Calends, which served administrative needs of the Roman Empire. High officials who would be appointed for a year took over on the same date, the 1st of January, every year. Calends meant the first day. The third was probably the Feast of Yule. It was called Gyol in Old English and Jol in Old Norse. Yule is possibly the best explanation for the anomaly that even though religious considerations would make Easter the main feast of the Christian year, in North Europe, that status is reserved for the Christmas. So, when in the 4th century, Christmas occupied the strategic date of December the 25th, it moved into a neighborhood already crowded with feasts and celebrations. By the 6th century, when Pope Gregory the Great's church forged ahead among the Germanic peoples, Christmas would emerge as the dominant of these feasts literally and liberally borrowing elements from the other three. A few resemblances can be immediately listed. On the social side, all three ancient celebrations involved banquets and a spirit of social harmony. At the Saturnalia, for instance, no punishments or fighting were allowed and superiors served inferiors. The giving of presents at the midwinter feast almost certainly began as a magical more, more really than a merely social custom. Saturnalia presents um, included wax dolls given to children, a charming custom by times of record, but it had a rather... Um, horrible past. Even contemporaries thought this probably a vestige of human sacrifice of children to aid uh, the practice of sowing and so on. A more probable ancestor of the Christmas present could be the strena or involved in calends. It too had a slightly sinister background. By times of historical record, the strena or New Year gift was an earnest of good luck for the year, and it consisted of figs, honey, pastry, or uh, coins. On the magical or symbolic side, again, some features were common to all three feasts. All of them sought to encourage the return of the sun of vegetation. All featured tapers, and Yule 
in the well-forested North Europe also had its log, whose virtues were still well known in the medieval period. As for vegetation, the decoration of buildings with evergreen was common to all three feasts, laurel predominating in the south, conifers in the north. These, of course, included a yule tree. Yule probably inherited a regard for the maverick evergreen mistletoe from the Druidic religion, whose rites in that regard um, are described at length by Pliny in the first century. Finally, the ritual baking of special cakes and pies was probably present in the Saturnalia and certainly in Yule, in which one sort of pie was fashioned to resemble a boar, a beast itself often eaten, perhaps the original sacrifice at the feast. But what of the new element or Christmas proper? The word Christmas is from the Middle English for Christ's Mass. And the early history of the feast is largely a matter of the mass and the adjacent liturgy. Christmas was long peculiar in having three masses at midnight, dawn or cock crow, and in the day. The most, most characteristic of Christmas is the one at midnight. It was believed that Christ was born, not merely on the darkest date of winter, but at the darkest moment. We know that midnight mass was celebrated in Bethlehem around 400 AD, probably followed by a dawn mass at Jerusalem, and that, partly by imitation, the threefold pattern was fixed in Rome by the middle of the 5th century. From Rome, it spread gradually to the Western Church as a whole. So these are the two elements, old and new, inherited by medieval Christmas from the ancient world. The story of the medieval feast is of their mutual effect, their combined effect. The effect was, of course, not equal. And let us first look at the old element. The first of all its features was the banquet. Chroniclers are always telling us where a king or a magnate celebrated Christmas. Although such literary men were usually above discussing food, the gap they leave is supplied once account books came on the scene. We know, for instance, of a royal Christmas feast in 1377 under Richard II. 28 oxen and 300 sheep were eaten. Smaller scale Christmas dinners are harder to find, but the Yule boar, either the actual animal or a pie in its shape, remained a centerpiece of it. 
and um, it remained a centerpiece until the Turkey arrived from Mexico in 1531. Lesser birds and game are, however, mentioned in recipes in large quantities. It is true that medieval Europeans sometimes starved to death, but when they ate, they ate in a measure which did not escape satire. An anonymous 14th century story, a poem really, describes a knight's advent meal in quite different terms. It included, and I quote, several soups or stews, two helpings of each, then various sorts of fish baked in bread, grilled, boiled, stewed, and spiced, and all with sauce, unquote. After this, the waiters offered him wine to help him enjoy his penance, quote, unquote, penance more easily. Meanwhile, a real Christmas in the 15th century can be glimpsed in a letter from one Paston to another on Christmas Eve 1459. A close friend had just died. John Paston got his wife Margaret to ask a neighbor who had been widowed the previous Christmas what effect her loss had on her celebrations. In other words, Paston's wife asked her neighbor what she did not do on the Christmas the previous year. So what did she not do? The neighbor answered, there were no disguisings, nor harping, nor luting, nor singing, no loud sports but playing at the tables and chess and cards, which sports she gave her folks leave to play and none other. So Christmas by um, the late 15th century would involve harping, luting, singing and loud sports, along with, of course, board games such as chase and cards and so on. Finally, comes the question of evergreens. Um, there is every reason to think um, that these practices were both common and old. The matter of the tree is more complex. Late medieval Germany knew a Christmas pyramid, a construction of evergreens with a star on top and a Christmas Eve play of Adam and Eve used a fir as paradise tree hung with apples. A copper engraving by Lucas Cranach the Elder in 1509 shows that by then, something like a Christmas tree had emerged from these antecedents. And further examples from the 16th century Alsis show the fashion was quite established. A simple evergreen tree had nevertheless featured in medieval Christmas as also in Yule before it. So um, we, we have to um, reflect on um, how 
time has passed since 1444 and on the fact that many customs, even of our own grandparents' day, have vanished. Only then we would understand by the tenacity of these old midwinter customs, some of which lasted thousands of years. In one respect, therefore, um, if history means development, medieval Christmas did not have much development. But really, the older customs may have indeed survived a long time. But what about uh, the new, specifically Christian element in Christmas? Throughout the Middle Ages, the Christian Christmas was on the march in two ways, both negative and positive. So what were the negative ways in which uh, Christmas had been growing in, in the medieval times? One was its confrontation with its pagan rivals. The confrontation involved a twofold strategy, hostility on the one hand and adaptation on the other. The negative one was in its confrontation with its um, pagan rivals. The confrontation um, involved two developments. If these seems inconsistent, both hostility and adaptation, it's partly because um, the bishops were more puritanical in some places than others. From the more puritanical parts of the church, uh, we can easily invent or put together, um, really, curses and invectives against pagan practices. For instance, um, there would be these councils or, or uh, single bishops could proclaim um, all kinds of restrictions and protests. Perhaps the most revealing of such texts is one in the latter category. A letter of St. Boniface, who was the Archbishop of Mainz, um, to Pope Zachary in 742. Now, um, one must remember that Boniface was English-born, a monk and a missionary. He had learned his Christianity um, in a church which was converted only a century before his birth. Theirs was a learned Christianity, and like every um, learned Christianity or purest religion, Boniface was um, really more zealous than those um, who had been practicing it for generations. So um, he was talking about the Germans who had gone to Rome as pilgrims to the tombs of the apostles. Come January the 1st, what did they see? Boniface's protest gives the answer. They see, he wrote, and I quote, singing and dancing in the streets in pagan style, hidden acclamations and sacrilegious songs, bequests by day and night, and the wearing and selling by women of phylacteries and ligatures. 
unquote. Pope Zachary replied that he and other popes had been condemning these things for centuries. Now, that um, was confrontation. On the other hand, there was adaptation as well, probably much stronger. So, um, there is this famous letter from Gregory the Great to St. Augustine of Canterbury, in which the Pope, Gregory the Great, a Roman to the core, told his English missionary to adapt rather than uproot pagan institutions. Medieval church history is, from one angle, a long commentary on this principle. The very date of the feast, after all, implied a symbolic adaptation of the old Sol Invictus. Other pagan accotments of midwinter, um, many of these were based on um, sympathetic magic, lent themselves naturally to allegorical interpretation. Thus, um, Evergreen stood for eternity, the coming light of Christ, and so on. Pagan dances needed tougher treatment. Even banquets were not hard to accommodate. Holy Communion itself were historically related to them. As for presents, the Magi were really the inheritor of, of gifts. So um, there was hardly any basic pagan idea which could not somehow be transformed and, and accommodated uh, into Christianity. A good example can be seen in the, in the first surviving evidence of Norwegian Christmas prayers from the early 12th century. Differing benefits are, are sought from Christ and from the Virgin. From Christ, general favor, and from the Virgin, fertility may increase. Martin Nilsson, the Swedish historian, read this peculiarity as a vestige, a relic, of an earlier petition to pagan deities, to Odin, and to those mothers of Bede as fertility goddesses. Freya could well have been among these fertility goddesses. What we know of Freya's fertility strikes us as crude, but the Christian transformation rendered it obsolete. For Murray, give birth without help from human seed. And to whom? God himself. The idea of fertility could be taken no further. Therefore, the Christian Christmas was on the march then, in a negative way, as churchmen excreted, amputated, tolerated, and adopted and incorporated existing pagan customs. But in the last resort, the initiative did not lie with paganism. It lay with the idea at the center of New Christmas, the incarnation. In late medieval pictures of the nativity, the infant appears like a point of light, inexhaustibly pulsing out its radiations to all corners. 
a look at the corners will show that this is how the Christmas, um, the Christmas liturgy really functioned. It consisted of words, objects, images, acts, and song. In each of these, it can be found expanding, magnifying, radiating. The prescribed words of the liturgy left a slot for a sermon. A look at surviving Christmas sermons reveals a process of exploration and discovery of um, new implications, new additions in Christmas themes. The three masses, for instance, were connected with other threefold schemes. A 14th century bishop of Rochester links them with three ages of human history. A more influential scheme connected them to three meanings of nativity. The eternal generation of the world from the Father the historic birth of Jesus, the birth of Jesus in the hearts of men. Both the doctrine of incarnation and um, the tangle of legend that grew around Christmas story were explored. In the course of these searches, we at times almost hear the preacher's voice the local preacher in many places kept adding new details. Even um, in the world of words then, the liturgy carried the principle of its own growth. But the liturgy also involved objects. The main object um, engendered by the Christmas liturgy was the crib. We've seen um, that St. Francis of Assisi did not invent the creep. But it is quite right to, to associate Francis and his movement with the crib. Not only were Franciscans evangelical in the sense of trying to spread the gospel message to all ranks of society, including illiterates, their founder was also the main exponent of a tendency linked to that sort of evangelism to focus religious thought on the second person of the Trinity, the mother. The Franciscan Christocentrism was bound to give momentum to the religious appreciation of Christmas, of which the use of cribs was a part. The same Franciscan influence is visible, mixed with others, in a more sophisticated area of, of uh, liturgy's visual imagery, that is, paintings and pictures. Throughout the Middle Ages, illuminations and altarpieces bring in even deeper implications in the simple manger scene. The figures and attitudes serving as their silent language. Byzantine tradition 
which um, was reminiscent of pre-Christian images of the birth of Bacchus, put the nativity in a cave, thus completing the symbolism of darkness and providing a model for the grotto at Bethlehem. Western artists, especially after Giotto, preferred a shade in which each variation of detail would betray, would show some nuance in interpretation. One of the most eloquent uh, of these depicts the manger in the shape of an altar holding its body of Christ. More significant is a cluster of images um, with their origin in St. Bernard's Guidance for Monks, uh, which were meditations written in the 12th century and which gathered force to Franciscan and other mystics in the 13th century. Um, they see the nativity as an event simultaneously um, more human and more divine. Jesus comes from his manger and lies on straw on the ground. Uh, the word is important here, humus, the root of the word humilis or humble. Um, his mother comes out of her bed and kneels, kneels down in adoration of her own son. The climax um, would come after 1380 with the circulation of the revelations of St. Bridget of Sweden. Whether or not because she had passed her long widowhood in Rome, Bridget gave um, in one of her visions a detailed description of Jesus' birth. Just before it, the Virgin had doffed her shoes mantle and veil, letting her golden hair fall loose. Straight afterwards, she prayerfully worshipped her own child, whose body emitted such divine light that uh, the light of a candle held by Joseph was annihilated. These details produced um, a small artistic revolution visible in nativity paintings in um, the 15th century and later. So pictures or paintings like the crib extended the liturgy's visual imagery. Liturgical objects, liturgical acts were developed in another field to which, of course, scholars have given a good deal of attention. I'm talking about medieval Christmas plays. Whether the old masked mummery had any part in the origin of liturgical plays will be a matter of conjecture. What is more certain is that liturgy itself had by the 12th century given birth to quasi-dramatic scenes Soprano angels, for instance, singing from above the screen, and so on. Easter laid this proto-dramatic development. But Christmas came next. With the growth of urban populations, 
and the spread of education, plays, drama extended their range over the whole ecclesiastical year and at the same time jumped over the church wall into the town square. They came out of the church into the town square. Among the late medieval mystery plays, there was the Christmas cycle. It kept its place of honor. Late 14th century England had a particularly rich tradition. Bare biblical episodes were expanded by clerical authors with um, a great deal of ingenuity into whole plays. There was, for instance, the Two Shepherds plays from Wakefield, written in the early 15th century. They turn 11 verses of St. Luke's Gospel into 50 pages of drama and more details. English weather, shepherds' poverty, quarrels and high rents, all depict a winter of discontent into which the little tiny mop brings a happy ending. And finally, there come the sounds. The most conspicuously medieval feature of modern Christmas is the carol. Carol originally denoted a kind of dance with words, a deduction from the recorded words of early English carols reveals what kind of dance it was. A leader would sing a verse and a ring of dancers, the burden or chorus. The carol dance belonged among pre-Christian customs. By the later Middle Ages, the dances were often lewd in character. For instance, it was said that um, one of the major saints avoided carols and songs dissolute. And some surviving texts of pagan carols justifies that dismissal. But the metamorphosis, the transformation of the carol was the work of inspired local pastoral clerics. They made free use of Latin liturgical verse. 13th century Italian Franciscans like uh, Jacopon de Todi were pioneers in this sphere. The new genre of vernacular religious song inspired their northern neighbors. Then there were 14th century German Dominicans in particular uh, who contributed to enrichment of the carol genre. Under these um, influences, um, there began, probably first in Ireland, the tradition of carol writing in English, which has since never stopped. Traces of the pre-Christian carol dances survive in early English carols. The holly and the ivy, for instance, probably represented male and female principles in early fertility beliefs. Such ideas, when they were removed from their pre-Christian context, now became mere decorations to a purely Christian genre. 
So carols too start a new life since the 15th century and so on. The old symbolism persists at the center of this infinite wave of analogy. But to conclude, if we review this diverse elements of Christmas, old and new, we see one single theme running throughout. A threat is overcome. Death and pitch blackness are at the very door, but are somehow magically or miraculously defeated. The threat is an indispensable part of it. What could evergreen symbolize unless most leaves died in winter? Or what could candles stand for if winter nights were not cold and dark? The old feast, let us not forget, was not merely that of Saul, but of Saul Invictus. The epithet unconquered bequests its defiance to the entire optimism of Christmas. But of course, it is spelt out best where one would expect it to be in the gospel for the day mass from John 1, 5. And I quote, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Now there we go, the Christmas and the New Year. Let me wish you a very happy, peaceful, safe and prosperous 2022. We'll be back with History Chatter next week. Lots of interesting episodes are in the pipeline, but I'll be talking about them all in the next year. Happy New Year then.